Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Just about a decade ago, my guest today, Simon Moss, co-founded Global Citizen with a few friends in Australia. It has since grown into a behemoth of global advocacy on issues related to ending extreme poverty around the world. I've known Simon for years and have watched Global Citizen evolve over the last 10 years, so I thought it might be useful and interesting to learn from him how an advocacy group like Global Citizen is adapting to broader geopolitical shifts underway, including the rise of China and the withdrawal of the United States from its traditional role as a champion of global health and anti-poverty programs. Much of our conversation focuses on those trends underway. We do, though, kick off discussing the origin story of Global Citizen before having a longer conversation about the evolution of global advocacy work. Global Citizen is probably best known for its annual music festival in Central Park in New York that takes place during UN Week. That event brings together music stars, NGO leaders, and government officials on stage, all in an effort to catalyze action on key global issues. And we do discuss the advantages and disadvantages of using a giant event like the Global Citizen Festival as a platform to engage policymakers and the public on these global issues. I think you'll find this conversation a very useful guide on how one of the more entrepreneurial individuals and groups in global advocacy uh, are shifting their strategies in light of current geopolitical realities. I learned a lot from this conversation. I suspect you will too. Just a quick note before we begin, we've gotten a lot of new listeners in recent weeks and months. Uh, welcome. As regular listeners know, I love hearing from you guys. If you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please send them my way. You can send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I do really love hearing from you. I mean this, you know, I, I put this podcast together for you guys. You know, my core audience of this show are professionals who are involved, invested in global affairs, global development, foreign policy issues. So let me know what you're up to. Let me know what you would like to hear on the show. All right, now here is my conversation with Simon Moss, co-founder of Global Citizen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So Global Citizen uh, was set up by myself and uh, Hugh Evans and Wei Su, two other Aussies, uh, about 10 years ago, actually, um, where we'd all volunteered together at a, at a youth-run aid and development agency in Australia. We specialised in doing grassroots and campaigning work because we saw that 
uh, the the systems that were were creating the problems that our fundraising for education projects in places like South Africa and East Timor, uh, the systems that, that were really causing those were going to be much better addressed by uh, governments and big business and by big philanthropy doing their jobs better. And we realised that actually we could have a lot more influence on those growing up in a place like Australia than we could raise money. You could run a great trivia night and raise $2,000. You could mobilise university students across the country to raise $20,000. You could engage young people across the country and maybe raise $200,000. Or you could put those same young people on a bus and go talk to constituents and go talk to politicians and be a part of a a sector-wide movement that could help unlock $2 billion. And so... Our work really started out of this this simple idea that the the ideas that citizens held in a place like Australia or in Britain or in New Zealand were so often based on on assumptions that were outdated. They they had this very band-aid 1980s flies in the eyes version of, of how international development happened, and that just wasn't what we were seeing when we visited colleagues and friends all around the world. That that actually at its best, international development was about communities lifting themselves up and that there were citizens leading the charge in so many countries to transform their governments, the business practices in their communities, and uh, who rejected this idea of of, um, the West coming in and fixing all the poor people. Well, so so basically, I mean, what what it sounds like you're trying to do is sort of affect systemic change by mobilizing a lot of energized, I suspect mostly like young people at the time, mostly young Australians at the time. Yeah, so we started um, with the the idea that if if we just did a better job telling stories um, that were more accurate, the more relevant, that led people to more useful uh, outcomes and work, that got people doing not less fundraising but more advocacy, then we could make a bigger difference. So our very first effort was a an interactive slideshow modelled off well what Al Gore did with an inconvenient truth. Uh, we called it 1.4 billion reasons. It was a series of stories around the 1.4 billion people who at the time were living in extreme poverty. And we went and did it in church halls and conference centers and high schools and university clubs and rotary uh, thousands and thousands of times. We we delivered it to about a quarter of a million people at about 2,500 events in, in three years in, in five countries. And for us, our work started there, saying, how do we talk to the people who are already to make a difference and get them to do more and do better. And through that, so, what we kept having people ask was, well, how can I how can I make more of a difference? And we met up with really great NGOs, people like Save the Children and the One Campaign and grassroots group like Results, as well as groups who are doing grassroots advocacy and said, oh, we've got this campaign coming up. Can you help us? Uh, we're helping Gavi raise more money because you talk about the value for money that vaccines can can deliver. Yeah, Gavi is the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, which is a, uh, a global, as it, the name suggests, a, a vaccination program and development and distribution program. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we very quickly realized that Actually, you know what? Our work at its at its best was really about combining the storytelling tools of pop culture. It was music and art and influence and film and storytelling with the policy work that so many smart people were doing, just that no one heard about. And, and early advisors to us, people like the the late great Hans Rosling, really helped solidify that because they said, uh, "Look, if you can if you can help people feel it, not just know it." 
then that'll change their behavior. So what was like an early example of a success of a policy change that you could trace to some of your advocacy efforts? So um, when we first started touring this presentation, we'd often go to Rotary Clubs. And I remember being at a Rotary Club in Seduna in uh, outback South Australia in 2009. And I spoke to the couple hundred Rotarians and I gave a quick example about polio because I knew that polio eradication was something that Rotarians had played a huge role in. And so I said, thank you to them. And I mentioned how my mother had polio as a kid growing up in Australia and how the world had helped reduce polio cases by about 99% at the time. And I used it as an example of why investments in global health mattered and asked everyone to write to their MPs. And some friends came up to me at the end and they said, you know what, as Rotary, we've raised a billion dollars over the last 20 years to help eradicate this disease. They'd helped get Bill Gates to invest and they'd had governments around the world chip in. But what they said to us is, we can't get the Australian government to put in any money. Can you help us? And we had a, a series of discussions with Rotarians all around the country in the following months, and, and we put together a campaign called The End of Polio, where as Commonwealth heads of government leaders uh, met in Perth in, in 2011, we ran a, a nine-month campaign pushing to get the Australian government to make an investment in polio eradication. And I'll be honest, the first few responses we got were, no, that's not interesting. There's only a 1,000 cases a year. Why would we try and, and stop it? And the, the answer that we gave is, well, one, polio anywhere is a, is a threat everywhere. It's incredibly contagious. Uh, the risk of outbreaks mean that we're spending as a world a billion plus dollars a year just trying to contain the disease, whereas if we spent a little more than a billion, we could effectively eradicate it. And it took some, some concerted time and effort. We mobilised 20,000 young people in Australia. We worked with Rotarians. We uh, did... Uh, activities in, in shopping malls and did letter writing campaigns and met with members of parliament. We ran a media campaign and we put together a little concert um, that was happening on the eve of the heads of, of government meeting because the citizens of Perth um, had their entire city disrupted, but no real reason to, to acknowledge or celebrate that 50 world leaders and and the Queen were coming. And out of that campaign, we were able to get the Australian government to go from a no to a yes. They made a commitment of $50 million to the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. And we then worked with the Australian government to get some matching commitments, which got us up to a total of $118 million for polio eradication. And for us, I think that the big takeaway from that was this idea of, of using pop and policy to not just tell stories, but drive action could have impact at the very highest levels. And, and we felt really acknowledged when a few months later, the, the governing body of, of the polio efforts globally led out of the WHO and UNICEF in Geneva said, you know what, we need more things like this, unlocking support. And I'm, I'm thrilled that, that since then polio cases have gone from 1,300, I think it was in 2011, down to about 30 last year. Mm -hmm. And if you have a look at what Bill Gates has been saying recently about the biggest and best in, in global health, polio is right up there because the world's right on the brink of, of eradicating the second disease in, in human history. So, so that was the origin, really, of, of sort of the concert around the big global gathering. And, and now Global Citizen is probably best known for the big concerts in Central Park at the end of UN week, where you, know, you have the biggest names in, in pop and in music and some big names in global politics kind of sharing the stage, all live streamed usually on, on MSNBC. Um, what have you learned about 
what works to affect real tangible policy from those specific events? Like, what can you point to or can you point to anything over the last, you know, several years of, of concerts in Central Park um, that have resulted in actual tangible um, policy changes? What we've seen is that you've got a large number of world leaders, of people who work in the international system who are really committed to, to making a difference. But there are there are political risks and political costs to many of them to, to doing that. What would be like an um, example of that? So uh, we've worked with governments who've said, look, I'd quite like to make this commitment, but I'm worried about how the media are going to attack me at home. Um, if I'm seen to be doing that. You've got leaders who are saying they're thinking about making an investment, uh, but they're just not sure if if um, it's going to be seen as good value for money by the public and they're worried about an election that's coming up a, a year later. You've often got um, uh, folks who work in international civil society and diplomatic corps who are big fans of some really great policy interventions, but who are struggling to get political attention for the work that, that they're doing. So a couple of of, of quick examples. Um, when we first started campaigning alongside the Global Partnership for Education in 2012, um, they just spun out of the World Bank's Fast Track initiative. Um, and there was this massive financing gap for education. Uh, and part of that was driven by being the poor cousin of global health. Global health had the global fund to fight HIV, AIDS, TB and malaria. It had Gavi, it had Bill Gates, it had Bill Clinton, it had Bono, it had every African leader that you could um, name who'd retired from politics. And global education had not very many people. You had Gordon Brown and Shakira. Yeah, who I was going to name Gordon the... Brown, who was an, yeah, <laughs> a short-serving uh, ex-UK prime minister. It's like the one and global you, leader you had these, advocating yeah. for global education that I could think of off the top of my head. And they were they were doing fantastic work, but they just, no matter how loud they shouted, no matter how good their advocacy was, there wasn't enough political momentum there. So one of the things we're proud to have done is helped bring additional uh, engagement, support, attention. We've helped bring Rihanna into the mix as someone who campaigns on these issues and, and who's worked to get um, uh, President Macri of Argentina to, to become an investor in, in GPU, worked to get first Francois Hollande and then um, President Macron of France to make investments. And for us, one of the big shifts was trying to move it from a, a policy first and often policy only series of conversations around effective funding mechanisms and help break into the the next level of of political engagement that could see greater levels of engagement by civil society, greater levels of engagement by uh, donors, greater levels of engagement by citizens. Because we ultimately realise if you take something like education, donors provide a small proportion of the funding to global education. If you talk to members of the public in any country, they think that education is one of the best investments you can make. But you were systematically seeing that donors were giving less and less in bilateral and multilateral funding to, to education. And you were seeing that a number of uh, partner countries to GPE were trying to make investments. That's the investments. Global Partnership for Education, GPE. Egg. Yeah. Yeah, and a number of, of partner countries were had big, bold, ambitious plans to achieve the global goals around and, and education, or as they started out, the Millennium Goals around education, and just couldn't do it all themselves. And so for us to be able to help unlock what was last year a roughly $3 billion replenishment um, for, for GPE alongside other civil society groups was, was hugely important. And one other example I'd 
I'd give that um, I was really proud of is we uh, last year worked very closely with many partners in taking Global Citizen to South Africa mm-hmm. um, to honour the legacy of what would have been Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday. And um, Nelson Mandela is, I think, in many ways, one of the ultimate global citizens, someone who has who made many personal sacrifices in, in aid of his country, his community and, and, and the world, and whose movement, the anti-apartheid movement, was one of, I think, truly global solidarity, that it was it was the efforts of citizens around the world alongside the leadership of those in South Africa that helped dismantle a, a system that, that did so much harm. And to be to be in South Africa to help celebrate that legacy, but to be working with South Africans to call on their government and governments around the region to scale up their investments and really have a look at what are the biggest barriers right now to success in particularly parts of of sub-Saharan Africa, looking at the hundreds of millions of dollars we're able to help unlock with uh, the World Food Program and others around um, nutrition, stunting and food security. Because we know that if kids don't get a really great start to life, then how will they ever uh, flourish and and survive? Looking at the investments that were being made by African philanthropists um, uh, to address challenges around uh, land rights, land usage, and around youth employment and entrepreneurship in their own countries to us was really important because the, the future of advocacy um, on a lot of these issues is going to be about accountability. It's going to be about service delivery, and it's going to be about unlocking trillions of of dollars of investment that isn't traditional aid and isn't traditional um, programming money that much of the community thinks about. It's it's going to be the big systemic economy wide things that in the ten countries that are most likely to have extreme poverty in the next thirty forty years. It's going to be about what they're doing. It's going to be about what happens in India and Nigeria and Ethiopia. Well, well, so that, um, that I think segues nicely into something I really wanted to focus on with you, which is the sort of effect of like the Trump era on global advocacy efforts of the kind that you do. I mean, the U.S. is historically and typically and traditionally the single largest donor. So like unlocking funding from the U.S. could have like huge transformative effects, as we saw things like PEPFAR. Um but now, you know, we, we have this kind of new kind of, of president. So how or has your advocacy or strategy efforts changed in any sort of meaningful way since this new era began, you know, a couple of years ago? We're now two years into it. You've had a couple of concerts. And uh, I'm curious to learn what has changed or what has stayed the same. So we uh, sat down with a number of our partners over the last six months and had a look at where in the money that we were helping unlock was it coming from. And, and traditionally, it's come from from the big aid donors. It's come from the Americans, the the Brits, the Norwegians, the World Bank, a number of the other European donors, the Australians, the Canadians. And, and they'll continue to play, I think, an incredibly important role on, on these issues. But what we're seeing is across many of, of the areas that we work on is, is the emergence of, of new donors Um, and the emergence of different types of investment. And so I think that at at the level of what are the inputs to to financing a lot of these things, the shift we're starting to see is is not that traditional donors become irrelevant, it's that they're no longer the only game in town. And so seeing a number of the funds uh, and groups that we work with really focusing on saying, what's it going to take to unlock not a billion but a trillion dollars worth of investment, starting to have many more conversations across the financial sector and the the role that some of the public-private partnerships are are beginning to make. And I think we're only just at the start of this. Jim Kim started talking about it with the Human Capital Index just before he resigned uh, from the World Bank last month. And 
we're going to see him move off now to the private sector because his view is that he can seemingly to deliver um, huge amounts of value. In other ways, we're seeing groups like the Asian Development Bank and the New Asian, uh, the Infrastructure uh, and Investment Bank, also taking up a much more interesting and important role around flows that could, if directed well, make a huge difference to, to fighting poverty and, and creating sustainable growth. Well, well can I ask or you there, like, like, how do you yeah. do advocacy like around the Asia Infrastructure Development Bank, which is you know a Chinese-dominated effort? Like, how pervious are they to? Um, your kind of, of advocacy? So I think that um, the different institutions and the different donors that are starting to emerge have different decision-making mechanisms, which means that the world has got to come up with different ways of being able to have those conversations. But what we do pretty routinely see is that these are organisations that are still run by people. And they're people who are needing to report to stakeholders around how they're doing it. They're trying to think about the legacy that they leave. And they're operating in a political environment, in a political context, which is asking how you're having impact in the world. We've certainly seen a withdrawal of, of American leadership from some of the forums that, that we work in, which um, has seen some new people step up, which has been great, but could be a real challenge. And so for us... Um, We've had some great, meaningful engagements with them, but I think that there's still lots of work to do. And a big question that I think much of the international community is still trying to work out is, is what does it look like um, to have an international civil society that is far less America-centric? Um, because it's likely that although America will become or remain the, the largest bilateral aid donor, um, they're certainly stepping back from the assumed or implied leadership that they had in, in very many areas. And at the level of, of what that means for citizens is we're collectively having to have a much more nuanced conversation. It used to be quite easy in, in a theory of change to, to be able to say, my country, my government has money out of my taxes. I want that money used well, spend it on this. But that's a lot harder to, to have when now there are more competing voices and where you have a political system where the that's much more contested in a place like a, a America. And so I think that the, the idea that a lot of um, activism and campaigning has been based on in, in at least the international development community in the West for many years has been challenge power, but don't outright oppose it. Because by and large, power, you want to be on your side. And that may not continue to be the case in, in some of the countries that, that we're all operating in, and it's certainly not the case in a number of countries that are doing the most and right at the forefront of, of, of tackling extreme poverty. And so I think you've, you've seen a much more um, assertive civil society response to demanding accountability in, in a place like um, uh, in a place like India and the work that grassroots groups are doing to, to take, say, a federal government policy like Swachh Bharat, which um, is Prime Minister Modi's Clean India campaign and an effort to ensure that every community in the country has appropriate sanitation facilities. And you're seeing citizens use that as a means of ensuring and holding their own local governments at the council, district and sub-national level to account, saying, what are you doing to deliver on this? But we're also seeing a challenging trend in that a number of countries, that sort of um, grassroots accountability isn't really, uh, isn't really supported in the sort of um, 
national level civil society campaigns are, are either seen as opposition movements that are being repressed and oppressed. You look at a place like Uganda right now and the, the challenges that um, Ugandan civil societies had. Um, Bobby Wine, one of the opposition MPs, was uh, imprisoned for a short while by the Ugandan government because he was seen to be too challenging, it appears, to, to Ugandan power. Sure. So I think that there'll be a, a, an interesting set of, of challenges for groups like ours, but for lots of groups who care about this well, so, so like, bigger than I, self-campaigning. Uh, like, <clears throat> what steps are you taking now to sort of prepare and plan for the kind of trends in, in the other contingencies that you just outlined? Like, what what different can we expect from Global Citizen in the coming years, do you think? So we, in 2016, made our first foray really into to deep Global South organising and partnerships with work. We, we started in India last year. We branched into, into Africa and we're working closely now with, with partners in, in East and West Africa and, and Southern Africa to, to ask exactly some of those questions. We're seeing that um, the really remarkable civil society leaders um, in those countries are doing, we think, the most exciting work and really lifting up and telling their their stories and, and finding ways to connect the stories of citizens in uh, the the citizens in say the, the global west who still have a lot of power who have certainly um, a greater degree of influence. How do you connect them with the stories of citizens in say Ethiopia or Kenya who are making a, a, a great difference? So we were really thrilled uh, last month to um, to provide a. a a grant um, as part of a prize called the Global Citizen Prize for Youth Leadership to a, a group called Food for Education out of Kenya, who we think are doing some of the most exciting work around tackling um, uh, food insecurity, nutrition and education and the, the connection between them. And to be able to, to make an investment in, in partnership with Cisco um, of a quarter of a million US dollars into that organisation to say, we back the work that you're doing. And we don't want to give it to you as traditional grant money. We want to give this to you because we believe in the work you're doing and the work that you can do to to unlock all of that potential. We think that there's much more to do in, in direct investments in supporting civil society groups. We think there's a lot of work to be doing in connecting the remarkable work that local groups are doing into the international system. You walk around the corridors of, of the major agencies in New York or Geneva or Paris and the discussions are often so disconnected from the organisations who are working on the ground. For us, the ability to connect the work that activists are doing directly into those discussions so that, that there's not so much of a gap, that it's not a discussion in the field and a discussion in a capital, because it, it's not going to work if, if they're not connected. And then finally, I think it's about changing where we play. Um, Global Citizen started in a living room in suburban Melbourne in Australia out of this idea that, that citizens were missing a beat by by investing some of their time and efforts in, in things that weren't as powerful as they could be. And I think that the next stage of this is, is working with citizens around the world to unlock their potential, which means showing up a lot more in places like Nigeria or Ethiopia or Kenya or South Africa or India, because those are the engines that are really going to be driving change. And that we need to help those connect up to an international system and an international series of, of institutions and bodies that still drive major investments, like this year, the Global Fund to Fight HIV, AIDS, TB and malaria, who are going to be looking to raise $13, 14000000000 billion to save millions more lives the next 
three, four years, and and Gavi, the vaccine alliance, who I mentioned before, who will be similarly looking to raise billions of dollars to save millions of lives in many countries. So, so it sounds We've like got to make you sure still that, do sort yeah. of foresee a role then for the kind of the big public facing events like the the concert that are that as you described are able to like mobilize concrete policy and, and resource commitments from countries at least for the foreseeable think, future i think what we're seeing is that, that whether it's an event it, it, what you need is you need moments to to force decisions to be made as painful as some of the global summits are as painful as say the paris uh, treaty process was in the climate change movement it brought all the players together and push them to make a decision, and it brought enough media and public attention that failure came with a cost. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think, think you've just identified the, things- the key importance of these kind of big global gatherings. And it's something I've been thinking of a lot as, as sort of commentary around Davos uh, seems to sort of um, seems to be more and more critical um, that, that there is still, I think, a role, not of Davos per se, but of these kind of big global gatherings. Well, and I think what you so often see, and and at least the feedback we get from our friends and colleagues inside ministries and inside diplomatic causes, is um, there's a huge amount of inertia. It's it's hard to push forward to a decision, even if everyone agrees in principle. If you don't have to make the decision today, if the foreign minister doesn't have a reason to say yes, then you may end up with great ideas that have a lot of support but never quite happen because there are lots of risks to making policy change. There are unintended consequences. There's potential blowback. There's political risks. And politics and our media cycle right now is so relentlessly fast on the issue of the day that it's very difficult to get some of these important long-term policy issues up and in the light. And I think one good example I'd give of that is is, um, the genocide of the Yazidi people. Um, we've worked for many years now with with Nadia Murad, who won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. And when we first started working with her a couple of years ago, there was virtually no discussion of the genocide. There was virtually no discussion about how we could bring justice for a series of war crimes that were everything you would think that the people would be outraged by. And Nadia's just relentless advocacy is amazing, and, and we're thrilled to have supported that. But the importance of trying to create moments and political space so so that the groups who who were looking at it, whether it was a commission of inquiry um, that, that was set up by the UN, whether it was the, the discussion that was had in the Security Council about it, um, and, and ultimately a, a resolution led by the Brits um, that I think has, has led to some really great progress – you need to create space for those things to have more room to happen. And now that Nadia and Dennis won the, the Nobel Peace Prize, they've got platforms and people will pay attention to them and it, it's easier for them to push these issues forward. But for so long, so many of these issues were were well understood in policy circles but didn't have the political traction to to get any real results. And I think that, that it's incumbent on lots of us to try and break down the walls between good policy and good politics and say, actually – We've got to make good policy into good politics, that we can have the best funding mechanism in the world. We can have the best way of reviewing laws to ensure that they're um, uh, less disadvantageous to to poor people. We can have ways of being able to organise our health systems or education systems to deliver better outcomes. But if we can't get them adopted politically and then delivered politically, then they're never going to happen. And I think that, to me, is the big challenge that much of the community needs to to look at in the next few years, which is that it's, yeah, about money, but it's about what happens next. 
Uh, well, Simon, that's a, a good place to end it. Thank you so much for your time. This was helpful and useful, and uh, I always love talking to you. Great. Thanks very much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Simon. And yeah, like I said, I've known Simon for a while. He's been a really big supporter of my Don's Digest Global News Clip Services. Global Citizen Group has an institutional subscription. And uh, I was there at the very first Global Citizen Festival, which was headlined by my all-time number one favorite musician, Neil Young, which was a very memorable uh, experience. You know, Neil Young and, and Jim Kim together on stage at last. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.